Hey, Forge family. The last time we were together in 1 Thessalonians, we looked at the emotional, exultant Apostle Paul. He had just received a report back from the Thessalonian fellowships by way of Timothy, and he was rejoicing that the gospel had set down roots and begun to grow fast in the lives of the new converts to Christ. And with the conversions came evident persecutions and afflictions. But the ecclesias had been about the kingdom business of strengthening one another and loving one another. <clears throat> Paul, having been uplifted by the report, was making plans to be with those churches as soon as possible, not knowing that six years would pass before he could return. History tells us that those Thessalonian churches continued to grow through suffering and made an impact on the whole region. Let's pray. God of peace and joy, you poured out through Holy Spirit into the hearts and lives of our Thessalonian brothers and sisters the confirmation and evidence that they had left idols behind and were earnestly pursuing righteousness. So, too, we would be those whose walk before you is pure and joyful. That is a challenge for us as it was for the churches 1968 years ago in Macedonia. Yet you, Lord, prevailed then to lead our brothers and sisters forward, and we're asking you for the same spirit who is present in our midst as we go. We praise you, Lord, for examples and the same power released to us to become your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name. <clears throat> Turn in your first Thessalonian texts to chapter 4. Paul has been informed by Timothy that the congregations have been, um, have been having to come to grips with the raw pagan sexuality in Thessalonica that the church members had formerly engaged in or took it just to be the way their culture worked. In the first eight verses here, Paul grips the matter and teaches the Thessalonian believers a new way to walk, a way of distinctly Christian sexual ethics and morals. Already, some of the persecution that fell on members of the ecclesias was because they had withdrawn from relationships and practices rampant in that city and were being damned for that. Paul begins in verse 3. Excuse me, per, verse 1 looking back over his shoulder at the exhortations of chapter 3, and begins with a bridge from how well the churches are doing to a problem that's, that needs profound help and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Finally then, he says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. The word finally here is probably better translated beyond this. He continues in verse 2, For you know that commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now here's the reminder language again. And with that comes a reference to Paul's expositing the Hebrew scripture for ways to begin to walk in purity before the Lord God. The Israelites received the commandments of God, uh, you know, who had revealed himself as Yahweh, the personal I am God, so that they could walk before him 
which they did in bits and stutters while Moses lived. Scholars believe that Israel diligently kept the law and the statutes of God on coming into the promised land for perhaps two generations before hitting the slippery slope of the Canaanite culture and its sexual ethic. There were no boundaries to the lust and deviance in that pantheon of gods and no boundaries for the Canaanite people that were left living throughout the land after the wars of liberation. Nevertheless, the scripture stands. The Old Testament condemns a wide swath of sexual behaviors and patterns from fornication to incest to bestiality to same-sex relationships to adultery. Where it fell short was the absence of a ban on prostitution. Gary Shogren wrote that, quote, Paul's definition of sexual sin generally follows Jewish standards, except that he categorically forbids consorting with prostitutes. James Brundage wrote that, quote, the biblical data confirms that Paul's condemnation of extramarital sex was sweeping and unqualified. When he used the term porneia, Paul's meaning was in unequivocal. unequivocal. It embraced any and all sexual relationships outside of marriage. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had been with the new believers in Thessalonica from dawn to the following early mornings, house to house, laying foundations for righteous living. Yes, they had taught a Christian sexual ethic before they departed. Now, Paul is dictating a letter back to them to strengthen them on this issue. As I mentioned in the introduction of this, this, um, this epistle, 1 Thessalonians, the city was a hot spot for all manner of sexual expressions. Demosthenes had written 300 years previous to Paul's day that, quote, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body, we keep wives for the begetting of children and for faithful guardianship of our homes, unquote. And that statement was regarding honorable marriage in that culture. Outside of the home, deviance abounded. Paul gets ready here to lay down a new code for relationships between men and women who love Jesus. In verses 3 to 6, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Unquote. Woo. There it is. This is not the first time the Thessalonians have heard this teaching. This probably falls into reproof, the firm reminder of what you already knew, but had yet to grasp and practice. In verse 3 comes the rare phrase, This is the will of God. It is to this passage that many come seeking what God's will is for them. And the answer for the last two millennia of scripture readers is the same your 
sanctification. Now, we're familiar with this word. It means holiness. It means being set aside for your intended holy purpose. Justification comes at the point of salvation, where you invite Jesus to come into your heart, and it means just as if I had never sinned. When you're justified, you're cleansed and made whole and brought into the kingdom of God. Justification is the past tense of salvation. Sanctification, which Paul's talking about here in Thessalonians, is present tense salvation. This is the process we engage in throughout life on earth to see holiness brought forth from within our spirit, soul, and body. Future tense salvation, of which Paul will speak of later in 1 Thessalonians, is known as glorification. Then we will be in the presence of the Lord and no sin will be present, no tears, no worry, no lack, and no temptation. The sin, tears, worry, lack, and temptation are daily battles for us in our sanctification. Paul is calling forth the ecclesias to strip away any and all sexual practices outside of Christian marriage, implying purity in marriage. Mentioned above, the Greek word porneia is the root of our English word pornography. Paul calls out to the churches to abstain from any, any immoral behaviors and imaginations. Secondly, he commands that each one, brother or sister in the Lord, know how to possess their own vessel. Here, scholars wrangle with this word as it's used by Peter in his epistles to describe women as the weaker vessels. But that would be translating and interpreting Paul by Peter. We are to translate and interpret the scriptures by Holy Spirit. Further, Jewish history among rabbis speaks of wives as the vessel which receive the husband's seed. Lastly, there are several inconclusive references to the male organ as the vessel in the scrolls found in Qumran, known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, that were used by the Essene sect in Judah. Now, neither the Jewish tradition nor the Essene writings have force here, being out of context as well. Further, because the Greek practice to expose newborn baby girls to the elements and predators so that they died, and in doing so, bypass the financial obligation of raising them, the male-female balance in the culture was way off, not unlike current-day China. This shortfall of marriageable women led to the persistent choices of prostitutes, adultery, homosexuality, and other deviants in Thessalonica and all of Macedonia. Here in verse 4, I choose the contextually clear use of vessel to speak of one's own body. Paul writes that we are to know how to possess ourselves in holiness and honor. Now, let me step away from the text here and share how I learned about brother-sister relationships in the body of Christ as, as part of my path of possessing my body in holiness and honor. So, growing up rural in America for 20 years, I had a tight family. We drove an hour each way to whatever local evangelical church we could find. The mix of young people in those small churches did not engender dating. 
So as a junior transfer to UC Berkeley, I was plunged into an ungodly dating scene, having never been exposed to the godly alternative. And dating at Berkeley was not a godly thing for me. When I graduated, I joined Campus Crusade for Christ and was assigned to the work for the gospel advance at Stanford University. There were no women on the crusade team, and we were forbidden to date students. Now, somewhere in the middle of my year at Stanford, I was approached and asked by a stunningly attractive sister named Melanie, and she and she said she needed me to take her to a Young Life banquet. And then following that, weeks later, she asked me to take her to a Young Life ra uh, raft race event on the Sacramento River in Sacramento. Now, I enjoyed her company, but she made it clear that she had a relationship with a man named Neil, who was in seminary in Dallas, Texas. She needed a brother to escort and accompany her here and there. <clears throat> I was attracted, and she knew it. I remember her asking me to pull a car over kind of in front of uh, her next, her next uh, uh, event, and she began to tell me specifically how brothers and sisters in the Lord were to relate. I listened, and I was amazed, for I had never been taught any such standard growing up. Melanie persisted to say that we were to hold each other in honor, to recognize that someday we would stand before the Lord, and in that holy place, look at each other with joy, not guilt, with peace, not shame, and with love and not regret. Then she hopped out of the car and waved her way into her next meeting. Now, I sat there for about a half an hour pondering her words, repenting for past wrong choices, and asking the Lord for his presence as I began to relate differently to my sisters in the Lord. Not long ago, Jan and I sat with a couple who said they were dating but wanted to be involved in Forge Ministries. I listened long and observed closely and then asked them to seriously change the state of their relationship, saying that in our culture, to declare that you're dating is a code phrase that means you're sleeping together or you plan to soon. Their eyes got big and they looked at each other and they nodded. My journey to Mary Janice was based on a brother-sister relationship, which I admit was, I was, just, I, I was just practicing at that point. I did learn to befriend her and then to respect her in the Lord and finally to love her. I commend brother-sister relationships to you all, regardless of age or marital status. We all stand before Jesus soon. And I want you to press in for a regret-free, holy atmosphere for you all. Now, finally, when I am enticed with any form, any form of porneia, any form of immorality, I pray, quote, Lord, a man could choose that, but I choose you instead, unquote. Then directly to the temptation, I speak, quote, leave me in Jesus' name, unquote. That has been part of my learning process um, as I learn to possess my body in holiness and honor. And it's still a process. Okay, back to verse 5. 
Paul continues from possessing your body to say, quote, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. That is to say, not like the rest of Thessalonica, not like the rest of Macedonia, not like the rest of California. Stand apart unto God as part of your sanctification. Verse 6 opens another issue of immorality. I know with certainty that brothers and sisters in the Lord can be tempted to use each other to satisfy loneliness, the need for touch and tenderness, and to wrongly stimulate lust and pleasure. In so doing, each can defraud the other. I have had it, I've heard it said, but, but pastor, we do not have intercourse, unquote. That's not the point. Will you be able to stand before the Lord soon and not have the charge brought against you that you defrauded, that you selfishly used, that you mutually used each other in, in, a, in, in an immoral way? Now, Holy Spirit, Paul, and I want us all to be free from this plague that is present in the modern church. And Paul says that the Lord is the avenger. Woo. Just know that when, when you come into his presence, what you have done, what you are doing, or what you imagine doing will, will be put under the Lord's judgment and vengeance. His goal is your holiness, and he means it. Let's treat each other as kin, as brothers and sisters in purity. Ask Holy Spirit to bolt this to your spirit, soul, and body. If he's done this, keep saying thank you to him in our debauched culture. On to verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Now Paul sets the Greek word akatharsin, which is impurity in the Greek text, in opposition to hagiasmo, which is holiness. It is God himself that has called us to the latter, to holiness. Verse 8 says, Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gave his, his Holy Spirit to you. Apparently, some in the ecclesias in Thessalonica were trying to ride the razor of a double life. Having been idol worshipers all their lives, the temples and festivals featured prostitution for men and women. And now they were coming to Christ as sex addicts. In house churches, they were seemingly all in. Outside the house churches, they wanted to continue expressing the old life of fallen sexuality and its perversions. Some deliverance workers I know describe this as dual streaming. We want the blessing of the fellowship, the meals, the good teaching, and the hugs from brothers and sisters. But secretly, okay, we can be filled with lust and impurity, ready to hurl ourselves back into the muck of the dark side of California or Thessalonica. In so doing, these wavering Thessalonians reject not just the teachings of Paul the Apostle, but they reject the God who gave them his spirit. 
Now Paul shifts to another need in the ecclesias. Classically, he begins with truth-filled compliments before coming at the issue at hand. Verse 9 says, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love another, to love each other, one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Paul begins with the Greek word for love that is to be expressed between kin, inside families. It is Philadelphia. Then Paul compliments the ecclesias for this righteous love for one another, saying that they have no need for anyone to teach them, for they've been taught by God to practice this love in the churches. Now in Galatians, Paul describes the churches as the family of believers. Here, there's a compound word that occurs only here in the New Testament. It does not appear again in any known writing for another 20 years. Excuse me, 200 years. It is the phrase, quote, taught by God, unquote, which is Greek. And it's the word theodidactoi. It is likely that Paul word crafted this phrase in recognition that Holy Spirit had been at work in the midst of the new believers. And beyond Thessalonica, this family of believers were making an impact of brotherly love among all others who followed Christ in Macedonia. Then Paul writes that they are to keep getting better at this brotherly love. Paul turns to the issue now that he wants to correct. Quote, Make it your ambition to live a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may have property, so that you behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul knows that Emperor Nero has dispatched the Roman legions to Ephesus to break up house church networks. If that were to befall an ecclesia, the brothers would be sent to the mines or to the galleys, which is both a death sentence, both of them a death sentence. The sisters in the Lord would be sent to the brothels or to the theaters to be publicly ravaged. Also a death sentence. Paul writes especially to the sisters in Ephesus to stay below the radar. Dress down, sisters. Be modest. Don't affect the piled high hairstyles of women who want to attract attention in that city. Now here in Thessalonica, Paul writes to the family of God to aim for a quiet life. One that does not attract attention in the marketplace. Second, Paul is aware that some whether out of genuine concern or out of meddling as a busybody, were addicted to gossip, to believers, you know, that, that they were addicted to, to sharing, if you will, quote-unquote, what they learned about others' situations in the churches. And thirdly, most of the believers would not have been wealthy and self-supporting, but rather needing to work to live. Paul urges this category of primarily brothers to get busy, to work with their hands, to make a living for themselves, and not be beholden to others to support them. And then Paul takes on the issue of the outsiders, meaning the rest of unbelieving Thessalonica and Macedonia and California. 
These may have been pre-believers who were watching the ecclesias closely to determine if this new family of God thing was the real deal. They may have been watchers on assignment from the authorities to keep track of this new religion and its radical ways. They may have been family members who had tossed a brother or a sister of the church into the street, disowning them, cutting them off and saying, you'll be back to grovel at my feet. The proof of the transformation by the gospel of the risen Christ was that the lazy began to work, the poor began to earn wages, and the outcasts became independent. Yes, the body of believers did help in times of need, but Paul's commands were, keep your head down, don't meddle, work for your keep to not be in need, so that you have a good reputation among those outside the fellowship. All right, Forge family, there are good reminders here. So the Lord has been at work amongst us so that we are theodidactoi. We've been taught by God. Parents among us have been judiciously raising their children to love the Lord, not meddle, but to work hard. The hook in this passage is that we live in a California society that freely expresses all manner of porneia, of immorality, whether in the public libraries, in the sex ed curriculums for kindergartners to high school seniors, the ready availability of birth control, the dating scene, the PG to R to M to X ratings and films that are required watching in some classes or for entertainment. We're awash in pornea. One of my sons was first exposed to pornography at age 10 by a neighbor boy and his father's video collection. Shame on them. Earlier and earlier, our children are exposed to what used to be shunned and avoided. Not so today. I know you could elaborate on my short paragraph there. But that said, we are called to holiness, and that includes our children. Please consider teaching biblical truth and purity regarding sex to your children at an early age. They're getting defiled by schools, friends, and media. This is not a one-time conversation. Walk with them. Mentor them to be holy. Excuse me. Second, pornography is widely used by pastors. Hmm. It has wormed its way into the pulpit and the secret life of those who would be models and mentors to us. Men and women are trapped in this lust-driven brain pleasure center stimulant. Pray for personal purity there and for a revival in the Church of America. How can we stand when our feet are bound in the muck of pornea? Third, freedom is at hand. The Holy Spirit extends the power of God to break free from the past, to enhance holiness and the presence, and make us shine as stars in a dark heaven. Seize that power. Employ Holy Spirit for his presence and purity. Slough off the old and put on the new. And do it often, until it becomes the garment of the new man or the new woman in Christ. Practice purity. 
And don't assume that because you've been raised pure, that will persist. The enemy's crafty and loves to slime us when we make wrong choices. Repent. Flee into the arms of Jesus and be protected and be made pure again. Lastly, as to the outsiders, they ought to be able to see the difference in us. If that is not true, we have become a compromised people. Call on heaven and ask for how to go forward in purity and self-sufficiency so that all of California can see and know that we follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God of purity, God of holiness, you lead the way forward so that we as sons and daughters mimic you, pattern our lives after you, raise our children to trust you and live like you. Find us grateful. Find us faithful. Find us on our knees. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge family. I love you. We'll see you soon. God bless.